Job chapter 38, verses 1 to 33. So Job's the book just before Psalms. So Job chapter 38, starting from verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, This far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal, its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light, and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. What is the way to the abode of light, and where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or seen the storehouses of the hail, which are reserved for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed, or the place where the east wind is scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain, and a path for the thunderstorm? to water a land where no man lives, a desert with no one in it, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass. Does the rain have a father who fathers the drop of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens when the waters become hard as stone and the surface of the deep is frozen? Can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? This is the end of the reading. Let's pray for the... commit the. So our second reading for tonight is from Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 23. And I have page 1142 of the Pew Bible. The Supremacy of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, 
and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Thanks be to God. Well, friends, um, I I thought it would be a good idea just to take 20 seconds out, move around, welcome each other, and I'll, I'll just get ready and set up. If you don't have an outline, uh, please grab one. That will help you with this sermon. Well, friends, let's uh, have a look at this passage. Uh, please have your Bibles open. It's, it's a very dense passage, and you'll need your Bibles. And if you have an outline, that's good as well. Now, I'm, I'm quite excited about this passage. It's very deep. Uh, but let's pray to God for his help and for his mercy. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you be our teacher tonight. Teach us the things of Christ that we should know. And teach us how we are to live our lives for him. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I want to start with this question. Who is Jesus? Who is the true Jesus? Now, you think about this and you think about the whole world and the different nations and countries, there are hundreds of views of Jesus. So which is the true Jesus? Now, can anyone tell me what country this is? I've got Easter eggs if you can get it right. Can anyone tell me? Okay, Hannah, catch. Oh, actually, you need, I need to answer first. India, it is. India. Okay, ready? Don't sue me. All right. Well, it's India. Now, do you know what the predominant religion in India is? Hindu. That's right. Hinduism. Now, when a Hindu considers Jesus, what do they think? Well, a Hindu looking at Jesus, they, most of them will be happy to say that Jesus... Uh, was in fact an incarnation of one of their thousands of gods. But is that the true Jesus, an incarnation of a Hindu god? Okay, what about this nation? Anyone can tell me where that is, what that is, which country? Got another egg? Yes. What was that? Thailand, very good. Okay, another one, don't sue me. All right, Thailand, what's the predominant religion in Thailand? Buddhism, that's right, Buddhism. 95% of Thais are Buddhists. Now, a Buddhist, when they consider Jesus, what do they think? Well, a Buddhist would say Jesus 
was just a wise teacher, a human being. A wise teacher, not as great as Buddha, but just a teacher. Is that the true Jesus? Okay, what about this? It's easy. Hands up, anyone? Okay, Indonesia, very good. Indonesia, what's the predominant religion in Indonesia? Islam, that's right. So a Muslim, when they consider Jesus, what are they thinking? Well, they will say that Jesus was a prophet. Not as great as the great Muhammad, but just a prophet. And a prophet who, in fact, did not die on the cross. Is that the true Jesus? Just a prophet. Okay, what about this one? Where is this? This is not a country, it's a state. Utah, who got that? Dave. Oh, it is up there. <laughs> Utah. Now, the state of Utah. Anyone know what the predominant religion in the state of Utah is? Yes, Mormonism. That's right, or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, according to the Mormons, what do they think of Jesus? Well, they would say that God, God the Father, had many spiritual wives. And God the Father, with these spirit wives, had Jesus. Uh, Jesus was born. He's the firstborn of many offspring. And so Jesus had a beginning. He was born at some stage. He's not eternal. And Jesus was not always God. He became God. Is that the true Jesus? So that's, that's their temple in, in Salt Lake City. Okay, now what about this one? Now, if you get this one, you get the big egg. It's not a country. It's not a state. It's, in fact, a city. What was that? No, not the Vatican. Anyone know? Come on, big egg. Big egg. Okay, let me give you a clue. It's in the United States. No, not Jonestown. It's, it's a big city. Yes, what was that? New York. So that's just Brooklyn of New York. Now, Brooklyn of New York, not after the predominant religion, but do you recognize this building? Anyway, yes, it's the JWs. That's their headquarters, the international headquarters, the Watchtower Society. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses, when they consider Jesus, what do they say? What do they say about Jesus? Well, they would say something similar to the Mormons. They would say that Jesus is not, in fact, eternal. He had a beginning. He was, he was, he was made, created at some stage. And they would say that he's the archangel Michael. That is an angel, and he became a man. There, there are five views there on Jesus. Are those, any of those, the true Jesus? Now, if you consider this and consider the rest of the world and even amongst us, I'm sure there are hundreds of views of Jesus. Hundreds of views of Jesus. And I'm even sure, I would even say that amongst us, there are different views of who Jesus is. To some of us, Jesus might be a genie. I pray to Jesus and he answers my prayers because he's my genie. To some of us, Jesus is the boyfriend Jesus. I sing about Jesus being the lover of my soul. I sing songs about how much I love Jesus and how much I want to touch him. And I sing it 20 times. To some of us, maybe Jesus is the boyfriend Jesus. Or to some of us, Jesus is the superstar Jesus. Jesus Christ superstar who sings rock songs. Or to some of us, 
maybe Jesus is just a baby Jesus, the the little soft baby Jesus, nice to cuddle in the arms of Mary. That's my Jesus. Or, or my Jesus might be the one who's been who hangs on the cross, crucified, and stays there for two thousand years. That's my Jesus, the one to be pitied. Who is Jesus? Who is the true Jesus? And I wonder whether our views of Jesus are any of those. I wonder how many of us, in fact, have quite a small view of Jesus. And I wonder how many of us, in fact, have a distorted view of the true Jesus. But today what we'll be doing is we'll be working through this passage, the the book of Colossians, these few verses, and we come to what I think is the deepest, the richest few verses about the person of Jesus and what he has done. Now, I suspect that for, for many of us, as we consider this, my hope is that our view of Jesus will be enlarged, expanded, so that it might align with this passage, that we won't walk away with a little, tiny Jesus. So let's look at our passage. Now, in this passage, Paul is making a big claim. He's saying that Jesus is supreme over all creation. That is, he's preeminent, he's most important over all creation. Now look at what he says in verse 15. He begins by saying, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. Now the word image is the word icon. So he's saying Jesus is is the icon of the invisible God. Sounds strange, doesn't it? Why would Paul call Jesus an icon or the icon of God? We see what Paul was doing here. This was a church he was writing to, and he's making a profound statement to them. Now, this church in Colossae, they were made of two groups of people. They were made of people who were Jews, who became Christians. And they were also made of people who were pagans or Gentiles who became Christians. Now, there's these two groups of people. Now, they often get along, but often they won't get along together. Now, Paul was making a a profound statement to this group about the person of Jesus. You see, the Jewish person, they knew the invisible God. They knew about the invisible God because the God of the Old Testament is invisible. And so they were, in fact, quite proud of that. They, where they live in Palestine, they were proud that their God was invisible, whereas all their neighboring nations, they worship physical, visible gods, gods of stone or wood, But Israel, they knew the invisible God, the one who was far above all heaven and earth. But you see, for the Gentiles, their gods were all physical. The gods made out of stone, of wood, statues, that was their God. And so when Gentiles became Christians, to think of God as being visible, as an image, that would make sense to them. Now, do you see what Paul was doing here? He actually puts it together. He puts it together, the invisible with the visible. He's saying to the Jewish Christians, you know your God, the invisible God? Well, he's in fact become visible. He's actually become visible in the person of Jesus. He has stepped foot into this world. He has died. He has came back to life. And now he's raised back up in heaven again. So you you Jewish people, you're you're invisible God. Well, he has become visible. Now Now you Gentile Christians, well, well, you know the physical God you're looking for? the visible God you're looking for, well, he has come too. But don't look for things made out of stone or wood. He has come in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the the image of the invisible God. 
And so Paul, he's making a profound statement. The invisible God has become visible. And then he goes on to say, verse 15, we're only up to the second half of the first verse. He is the firstborn over all creation. The firstborn over all creation. Now, I want you to think back to what I said about what the Mormons believe and what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. You see, what's Paul saying here? Is he saying that Jesus actually had a beginning, that Jesus was born at some stage, that he's not, in fact, eternal? Is that what Paul's saying here? And so does this mean that the Mormons, in fact, got it right? Does this verse prove that the Jehovah's Witnesses got it right, that Jesus is not eternal, he had a beginning, he was born? Well, you see, this idea is, in fact, not new. This guy in the late 3rd century and the early 4th century areas, he was a minister of a church, and he's the one who first came up with this idea that Jesus was not in, was not in fact, eternal. He actually had a beginning. And he got it from verses like this. He was the guy who's, in fact, the father of modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses. But you see, where this guy, where Mormons and where Jehovah's Witnesses got it wrong, is that they misunderstand the word firstborn. You see, firstborn can mean the one who was born first in a family. can mean that. But you see, but in the Bible, the way it is used, the firstborn is the one who actually has... Uh, first, who's first in rank, who's supreme, who's preeminent, who is uh, first in superiority. It's a positional thing. And so what Paul is saying here about Jesus is that he's the firstborn of all creation, over all creation. That is, he's most important over all creation. He's supreme over all creation. He's preeminent over all creation. That's what Paul's saying, not that he was born. Now, for an example... Psalm chapter 89, King David, he was spoken of as the firstborn among the kings. The firstborn among the kings. Now, we know David was not the firstborn in his family. He's, in fact, the youngest son. And he's not even the first king of Israel. You see, the idea of firstborn means supremacy, the one who has the most importance of the group. And so Jesus here is the one who is supreme over all creation. And so in this first first verse... Paul's making a profound statement. He's saying, in relation to God, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And in relation to creation, he has supremacy and, and preeminence over all creation. Now, just in case we don't get this, uh, get this, he actually makes it a lot clearer in the next verse. You see, Paul says that Jesus has supremacy over all creation because he's the creator. He's the creator of it all. Look at verse 16. Paul says, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. You see what Paul's saying there? He's saying there is nothing, nothing at all in all of existence that did not come about apart from the will of Jesus. Everything came about because of Jesus, the tiniest bacteria to the mosquitoes and flies. You wonder why Jesus created those things, but he created those things. To the lions that roam across the Sahara, the monkeys that swing across the forest, they were all created by Jesus. And then you look at the mountains, the, the mountains across the horizon, created by Jesus, made by Jesus. You look at the ocean, all made by Jesus. 
And then you look up at the stars, billions of stars and galaxies, all were made by Jesus. All that we see, all that is in existence is made by Jesus. But more than that, it's also thrones and powers and authorities. So this world ruled by princes or kings or prime ministers or presidents or parliaments, you see, all those things came about because of Jesus as well. And what this means is that you and me, we came about because of Jesus. We're sitting here because Jesus thought in his mind to create us. And more than that, even the invisible things. Now, that does the strangers, and how do you create something that's invisible? Well, whatever is invisible, Jesus created that too. All things, you get that? Everything that ever existed was created by Jesus. Now, it's a profound statement. It shows how powerful Jesus is. And so I want to ask us the question at the beginning. Is our Jesus, is my Jesus small, tiny compared to that? Is your Jesus too small compared to that? But you see, this is not all. Look at what Paul says next. Not only did Jesus create the whole world, he's the one that it's all, has, it's all been created for. He's, he's the goal of all creation. He's the purpose of all creation. Look at verse 16, the second half. You see, all things were created by him and for him. You see, the mosquitoes, you wonder why God created that, why Jesus created that, but they were created for Jesus. The lions, the bears, the whales, all created for Jesus. The, the mountains, the oceans, the stars, the galaxies, all created for Jesus. He's the purpose of all creation. And even you and me. And this is a hard thing to swallow. Everyone here, we were created by Jesus, whether we know it or not. We were all created for Jesus. Now what this says then is that we don't exist for ourselves. We don't exist for my own pleasure. I don't exist for my own desires, for my own passions. In fact, I exist for Jesus. And he owns us. You see, he owns everything. He created everything. And so he owns us. Every living soul, every cell, every atom, they all belong to Jesus. Now, last week, if you went to Belgrave Heights and listened to David Jones, he put it this way, and it's, and it's put very well. You see, you don't own yourself. You don't belong to yourself because Jesus made you and he made you for him. None of us own ourselves. None of us belong to ourselves. You see, this world does not revolve around us. In fact, it revolves around Jesus. He is the center, the focal point of all creation. You see how big and massive these verses are. Now, if that is not enough to sort of blow your mind, listen to what Paul says in verse 17. He said, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You see what Paul is saying there? He's saying that Jesus, in fact, continues to sustain and uphold this world. And so the cell, it's held together, it's sustained, it's living because of Jesus. Every single atom, it's held together, it's sustained by Jesus. Look at, look at what the psalmist wrote. This Psalm 104. All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. 
When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. And when you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. You see, Jesus continues to sustain and uphold life. Look at this, Job 12. In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Jesus continues to hold and sustain all life in his hands. So get this, the next time you take a breath of air, of oxygen, which is probably now, you're doing that because of Jesus. He's sustaining you. He's giving you life. You see how, how massive, how powerful he is. We continue to live because of Jesus. If Jesus was to stop, even for a second, even for just one second, stop running, holding this world together, all would just disappear. All would just disappear. We would all be gone. And so I want to ask that question again that I asked at the beginning. Is your Jesus too small compared to what's here? Is your Jesus too small? You see, Jesus has supremacy over all creation because he's the creator. He continues to sustain it. And all creation was made for him. But you see, that's not all we see here. You see, this world, this creation, is not all there is to God's plan. It doesn't end here. Because the Bible speaks of this world, in fact, passing away. It's passing away. Now, I, I used this um, illustration two weeks ago. and It's a good one, so I'll use it again. Just imagine this string. It goes on forever. It's, it's long. But just imagine it goes on forever. There's no end on that side. And just say that that string represents eternity. Okay, it represents eternity. It keeps on going, going, going. Our life here on earth, our life in this creation, in this world, it's represented by that much. So that might be 70 years, 80 years, 90 years. Now, the Bible is saying all in this creation is, in fact, passing away. God has his mind on the new creation, the things that will last for all eternity. And I want to say that that is actually quite confronting, isn't it? That all our efforts, all my efforts and decisions are placed in this, just this much of my life. All my efforts and energy are placed into the thing, into the bit that is passing away. But you see, God always looked beyond this creation towards the new creation, which will last, which will go on for all eternity. And so this new creation that that our passage we'll look at and talk about, it's talking about, the, the, uh, talking about heaven. It's talking about heaven which will go on forever and ever. And over this new creation, Jesus is supreme over that as well. Over this world, Jesus is supreme. He's preeminent. Over the new one, he is supreme as well. And we see this in verse 18. Have a look at verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. You see, this is looking forward to the new creation. And when this new creation comes about, Jesus won't be creating a new bunch of people for this new creation. That's not what's going to be happening. Instead, the people who will be part of that new creation is the church, are those who belong to Jesus are those who believe in Jesus, are those who are disciples of Jesus. So what Jesus is doing, he's redeeming people from this creation, redeeming people, the church, and making them a part of the new creation. 
And they are the ones who will be raised back to life again. And so the, the great heroes of the Bible, Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and the apostles and John the, John the Baptist and, and our, the grandmother who died believing Jesus, the auntie, the uncle who died believing Jesus. You see, all those, things, all those people will be redeemed and made alive again for the new creation. Now, we must ask here, why is it that we need, why do we need to be redeemed? I mean, what's wrong with us? Why is this necessary? Well, well the point here is that we're not fitting for the new creation. We're not fitting for heaven. And Paul tells us why in verse 21. He says, you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. You see, what has happened in this creation since the beginning of time, even though it was Jesus who gives us our life now, even though it's Jesus who sustains our life now, what we've become is we've become enemies of God. And we've become enemies of God by saying, we don't need you, God. Stay away from me, God. We've become enemies of God by rebelling against God, by saying, okay, I've had enough from, of, from you, God. I, I want my independence from you. And what has resulted from our independence from God? Well, Paul tells us we do evil things. We have evil thoughts. And so we've become enemies of God. And as enemies, we are not fit for the new creation. But now look at what Jesus has done, what God has done through Jesus. Verse 22. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish, and freed from accusation. You see what's happened here. The creator, Jesus, has become our redeemer. He created us. We've stuffed up. But he redeemed us so that we can be a part of this eternal kingdom, this new creation. You see, the one who created us, in fact, gave up his life to redeem us. And for what reason? Well, Paul tells us, he says, to make us new, to make us holy and blameless before God, to make us fitting for this new creation. I wonder if that just blows your mind. Christ, the preeminent one, the one who made everything for him, would give his life to be our redeemer so that we could have eternal life. Now, when we come to grasp how majestic Jesus is, I want to ask us all that question again. Is your Jesus too small? Or has your Jesus been expanded and enlarged so that it aligns with what we see here in Colossians? So now what for us? What is all this for us? What now for us? Well, I want to say this. Don't waste your life. If Jesus is who he is, if this is the true Jesus, and not those five we talked about at the beginning, if this is the true Jesus, who is the creator of all, the sustainer of all, and the one for all things were made for, if that's the true Jesus, don't waste your life. We need to go to him for life itself. We need to go to him for the meaning of life. He is the source of life. He is the one we need to go to. And we need to remember here, we don't own ourselves. You don't own yourselves. You were made for Jesus. We were all made for Jesus, and so we can't go on living and thinking as though Jesus doesn't exist. 
We can't go on living and thinking and, and, and just ignoring Jesus. Don't worry about Jesus. We'll leave him for another day. If he's the center of all creation, we can't do that to him. We can't go on living as though Jesus was just an ordinary man or just a prophet or my boyfriend Jesus or the genie Jesus. We can't go on living with any lesser view of who Jesus really is. And so if we are made for him, we don't waste our life by living for ourselves. We don't waste our lives by living for ourselves. If we live for ourselves, we've become an enemy of God. We've become an enemy of God. But how then do we live for Christ? Well, look at verse 23, our last verse. Paul says, If you continue in your faith, establish and firm, not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. You see, we live for Christ by continuing in faith, continuing in trusting him, continuing depending on him, because he is the source of all life. He's the center of all creation. And we hold on to the hope that is offered by the gospel. We hold on to the hope of eternal life, of the new creation. And just like Paul, we don't waste our life if we live for Christ. And we live for Christ by becoming a servant of the gospel, just like Paul. You see, Paul became a servant of the gospel. This is not talking about being a minister or missionary. It's about living for the sake of Christ. And so we proclaim, we share the gospel. And if you think about it, that's the most loving thing anyone can do to anyone else. It's, a, it's the supreme act of love to share the gospel, to be a servant of the gospel, and to proclaim it to another human being. Because we're, in fact, showing them where they can find eternal life. What can be more loving than that? Because when they believe, you see, they are redeemed and they become part of the new creation. So to be a servant of the gospel, well, that's how we won't waste our life. Now I'll come to this bit at the end. When we consider all the views, hundreds of views of Jesus at the beginning, I wonder whether it causes you to sort of weep inside, to sort of your heart to churn inside, to feel great sadness. Because if you think about it, all those thousands, hundreds of views of Jesus, they're in fact all wrong. The true Jesus is what we've just read. And all those have got it badly wrong. And we don't say that uh, with pride. We actually say that with sadness because they're missing out. Their, their Jesus is not the true Jesus. So what that means is that they don't actually know their creator. They don't actually know the one who has given them life. And because they don't know the true Jesus, they're missing out on knowing the Redeemer, the one who in fact gives them and can give them eternal life. And so we have a lot of work to do, don't we? Let's not waste our life. Now I want to end with this. Last week, not sure where you guys go for walks. You might go to bush and mountains. Well, I went through the cemetery for a short walk this past week. And I like just to read what's on this uh, uh, tombstone. Now, I came across this one, and, and, and I, was, 
I was sort of touched by this one because of what was written. Now, I'll, I'll read what it says here. I won't read it all. But this guy, WTC Stores, he calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, one day we will all die. Everyone around us will die. But I wonder how many of us can put this on our tombstone. WT Stores, a servant of Jesus Christ, and his wife, Adelaide Stores. They shall be raised up together in Christ Jesus. They shall be raised up together in Christ Jesus. They knew the Lord Jesus as creator and also as redeemer. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, for teaching us who he really is. Glorious, powerful and magnificent, the one who created all things, who sustains all things, and the one for whom all things were made for. Help us to see Jesus as our creator, but also as our redeemer, the one who gave his life for us. And help us to be servants of the gospel, to not waste our life. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.